Would you take out your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse number 1. As you're turning to Philippians chapter 3, I'm going to turn to a two-verse reading from the Old Testament. It's found in Isaiah chapter 61, verses 10 and 11. Because this message is focused on righteousness, um, I'd like you to hear those words, righteousness, as recorded in the book of Isaiah. What was the page number for Philippians? 1165. Okay. Turning now to the Old Testament, I read from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 10 and 11. Isaiah, the great prophet. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Turning now to our New Testament reading, Paul's letter to the church of Philippi, starting in verse number 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So far God's reading from Holy Scripture. I do want to add one more verse, and it's found in chapter 4, verse 1, to go along with what we have read so far. This is important. Therefore, my brothers, and I will say here, Sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, 
Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Let's pray. Father, this is your holy word. Let the words that your messenger proclaims truly be your words, your counsel, your will. Help us, Lord, to have minds to understand what is being preached here today. And help us to have hearts willing to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of this message is Knowing Christ Jesus, Part 1, Righteousness. Before I begin the message, I have to tell you that uh, in laboring for this message, I was challenged. I really wish I had four hours to preach today. But I am afraid that long before I got to the four-hour mark, you would be falling asleep and falling off of your chair, much like uh, Eutychus did long ago when Paul preached long into the night until midnight, and Eutychus fell asleep and fell out the third-story window, and he fell dead. If you do fall off your chair this morning, I think the worst you're going to get is a headache, but I don't want you to fall asleep, so I have to make this message a little bit shorter. You know, righteousness may not seem like for us here in the year 2021 to be a very exciting theme. We talk about Jesus and being in him. Most of us would rather hear about his love and to experience his love and the joy that we have with him and the peace that we have with him and being accepted by God and affirmed by God. These are modern themes that uh, most people gravitate toward and have a great affinity for in the church in 2021. I want to talk about righteousness, though. It is a crucial concern for us, even as it was in the first century church and for a first century Jew, even those who didn't know Christ. Righteousness was a crucial concern. Knowing that you had a right standing with God in his covenant community, Israel. Paul loves this little church, Philippi. Isn't that what it just said in chapter 4, verse 1? My brothers whom I love and long for, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. He loves this little church, Philippi. He planted it, and he's nurturing it. He wants it to survive. He wants it to grow, and he's looking to protect it. He's trying to teach them how to protect themselves and how to stand firm against the opposition. He tells them that you need to be of one spirit, of one mind. You have to contend side by side for the faith of the gospel. When I plunge into a message like this about righteousness, what is even at stake here with righteousness? I'm going to tell you what I feel Paul sees is at stake. One is having genuine peace with God. Number two, righteousness, when we grasp it, has everything to do with us having unity in the body of Christ. Remember, Paul is telling them to contend for the faith of the gospel. They've got to do it side by side, and you must be of one spirit. You must be of one mind, one soul. What were they contending against? 
this little church of Philippi that he wants to be able to stand firm. They were contending against Caesar worship. This little church was planted in an area surrounded by the Roman Empire. This little fledgling church had to stand against Caesar worship. The Roman Empire, the leaders were demanding that the entire empire uh, offer obeisance, worship to the emperor, Caesar, Caesar himself. Paul reminds them, though, that Jesus is the ultimate Lord. Today, we face the same types of things. Increasingly, I suspect you can feel it. We're going to face increasing pressure from political authorities who are going to look to have the population give them the respect as having ultimate authority over our lives. And even though we respect our authorities, we pray for our authorities, we pay taxes, we must remember that the ultimate authority over our life is Jesus. Jesus is Lord. Paul reminds them also, he's told them that they're facing the pressure from the pagan culture they're surrounded by. He called the culture a crooked and twisted generation. And Paul told the Philippian church, but you, you must be pure. You must be blameless. You must be holy. He told them also that you're going to face opposition from yourselves in this sense. There'll be infighting, internal strife within the church from those who are selfish, trying to advance their selfish ambition. But you must be humble. You must consider others' interests more important than yourselves. And stop your grumbling and complaining. These kind of attitudes are destructive to the church. You must rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. But finally, Paul's not done about standing firm. He brings up one more thing that they're going to face opposition from. And he wants them to stand firm. He wants them to stand firm in the status of righteousness. The statuses of righteousness that they have as a covenant community with God on the basis of their faith in Christ. For us and for the church of Philippi, this righteousness that comes to us, it's not on the basis of anything that we have done, but it's on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done for us. His life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his shed blood. On, on our behalf and on the behalf of the Philippians, Jesus Christ has fulfilled all righteousness. Jesus Christ has fulfilled all the righteous requirements of God. And now that righteousness, that righteousness that's of God and from God, that right status, that right standing that they and that we have with God is ours on the basis of faith alone. This right standing with God, right with God, in Christ alone, and in nothing else. It is all of God. It is all of Christ. It is grace. It is amazing grace. It is given to us through faith. 
And this is where we find our peace with God, ultimately trusting in what Jesus has done for us. This is what grace is, and this is where we find peace, and that is why the letter to the church of Philippi starts off with this, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Our righteousness is on the basis of what Jesus has done for us and our trust in him. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. Stand firm in it. Because you have one more opposition now to contend with. And what is that opposition that you're going to face beyond all the other things I talked about? The culture? Caesar worship? Pressure? Religious people. Opposition from religious people. Who come into your community, your faith community, and tell you that to belong to God's people, his covenant people who have been justified by faith and who enjoy the status of righteousness with God, who have peace with God, who are part of the body of Christ, the church, that your faithfulness, your faith in Christ and Christ's faithfulness on your behalf, what he did on your behalf, it's not enough. It's not enough what Christ did for you and your trust in him. It's Christ plus something. They will come in and tell you in this first century church, it's Christ plus circumcision. Paul talks about other things, not just circumcision, obeying the law, that people will say it's not enough to have Christ. There will be those that come in and say that you must treat your body harshly. Asceticism, special fasting, plus Christ is what makes you right with God. Some will come in and talk about the worship of angels and special Sabbaths. There'll be some who come among you, Paul said in other writings, who will forbid you to marry. There will be those that come in and who will say to you, don't touch, don't drink this, don't eat that. All of it, Paul says in other writings, has an appearance of wisdom, but it lacks any power to have sanctifying effect over your flesh. What Paul is saying here to the Philippians, if you want to play the flesh game, you want to play the zealous human effort game in an effort to be right with God, I know that way of life. I excelled in it. I have the heritage. I have the pedigree. I've got the birthright. I was circumcised on the eighth day in accordance with the law. I entered into the covenant people of Israel. I had all the requirements done for me to enter into the covenant people of Israel. In fact, I was of the tribe of Benjamin, one of the two tribes that didn't get whisked away by the Assyrian Empire. Benjamin and Judah were left. I'm from Benjamin. I'm a descendant of Abraham, a literal, physical, flesh descendant of Abraham, the father of us all. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, he said. And Paul, in describing himself, says, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was the top Pharisee. I was trained under Gamaliel. I was the leader in the class. 
I was fastidious about keeping the law and about temple worship and keeping the Sabbath. I was a zealous Pharisee, so zealous that I was killing Christians who were disrupting our covenant community. I was persecuting the church. You want to talk about righteousness? As far as the righteousness under the law is concerned, I was blameless. Now, by Paul, with Paul saying he was blameless, it doesn't mean that he'd never sinned. It's just that the law made provision for sin. When Paul sinned, he sacrificed animals in accordance with the law, carefully, fastidiously, so that he could continue to have that status of righteousness on the basis of human effort, blameless before the Lord. The blood of the animals didn't take away the sin from Paul. They just covered sin. You want to talk about flesh and works and human effort to attain the status of being right with God? I had it all. That's what Paul says. I had it all. And I was the best of the best. But little church of Philippi that I love, it was worthless. It was rubbish. It was a waste. It was a loss. I consider all of it a loss. Together with so many of my fellow Jews, Paul says, I was pursuing the righteousness of God, but I was doing it without knowledge. And I, and together with so many other Jews, ended up establishing my own righteousness. What happened to Paul? This champion of righteousness from self-effort. What happened to him? How did he have this absolute change of direction, this 180-degree turn, this repentance? Brothers and sisters, this is more than a new philosophy, a new perspective on life, or a fad. You're not going to change Paul from where he was with all of that clever preaching. This is a new life that Paul has. He's not the same person anymore. He's a new creature. He's had a cataclysmic change in his theology. What happened to him? On the road to Damascus, on his way to killing Christians and persecuting them, he met the Messiah. The Holy One of Israel. The Chosen One. The anointed one. He met Christ. Any of you in here have that powerful experience of meeting Christ? It's a 180 degree turn, isn't it? Little Bonnie. He met Christ. And it was a life shattering, a life saving encounter with Jesus Christ. And Paul put his faith in him. Let's try to understand Paul a little bit better in that context. Can we pause for a moment 
and just consider his life. And as we pause for a moment, as we unfold this righteousness, I, and we try to get a better handle on Paul in this setting, I also want to address kind of one of those tough questions that you, you get, you got to try to answer as a Christian when people say, well, okay, if it's faith in Jesus and it's all this, but what about all those people that lived before him? Are they in hell? Jesus Christ, his earthly life, his life, his death, his burial, resurrection, the crucifixion on the cross stands as the center point of human salvation history. We look back 2,000 years to what the Messiah Christ. I'm using the word Messiah. By the way, when you read Philippians chapter 3, will you notice how often he, he just says Christ, Messiah? Christ is simply uh, the, the Greek word for Messiah. Messiah is the Hebrew way of saying it. The Greeks say Christ. Or when it comes to the two words put together, Jesus and Christ, did you ever notice it's always Christ Jesus? except on the rare occasion when he's putting the Lord, and then he'll go, the Lord Jesus Christ. But all other times he says, Christ Jesus, again and again. Because for Paul, Christ is not his last name. It's his title. When he says you're putting your faith in Christ Jesus, you're putting your faith in the Messiah, Jesus And we're looking back 2,000 years to the Messiah, what he did for us. His death, his burial, his resurrection, his fulfilling all righteousness, his shed blood, that's the gospel. But what about those from ancient times? What about if you go 2,000 years ago to Abraham, who lived 2,000 years before Jesus? What about them? What about going all the way back to Adam and Eve? They were by faith looking ahead 2,000 years to the coming of the Messiah. And the gospel was preached to them as well. Adam and Eve. They were there when God told Satan, Satan, the offspring of that woman, Eve, that offspring is going to crush your head. You're going to strike his heel, but he's going to crush your head. And then God made animal skins, shed blood, and wrapped the loins of Adam and Eve, pointing ahead. This is the gospel, the seed that's coming, the Messiah who's coming, and there's shed blood involved with it. Abraham, 2,000 years before Jesus, the gospel was preached to him. It says so in Galatians. Listen to this. Listen to this. Abraham has a son, a son of promise. It was a son born miraculously to two old people, Abraham and Sarah. A miraculous birth of a son. And God had told Abraham that through this son, all the nations would be blessed. 
But then one day, God told Abraham, Abraham, take your son, the son of promise, your only son whom you love, and take him to the mountain that I'm going to show you and sacrifice him there. And Abraham went. And he took his son, Isaac, the son of promise. He loaded the wood on his shoulders and they went to the mountain. Abraham prepared an altar. Isaac says, well, Father, the wood and the fire are here, but where is the lamb? And Abraham has to answer his son, God will provide a lamb, my son. And he lays his son on the altar, bound. He raises the knife to plunge it into his son in obedience to God. Stop, Abraham! (laughs) Now I know that you'll obey me in everything. And God says to Abraham, I swear by myself, because you have obeyed me, Because you have obeyed me. Through you, through your offspring, through your seed, all the nations on earth will be blessed. And Abraham saw a ram caught in the thickets. He caught the ram and he offered it as a sacrifice. Blood was shed accompanying that gospel that Abraham was hearing. But the lamb had not yet come. It was a ram. David saw it. He writes about the coming Messiah, the Messiah in all of his, or in so many of his psalms, what we call poems and psalms, including Psalm number 22. Right before your beloved Psalm number 23, Psalm 22 opens up, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The prophets saw it. Isaiah saw it. The great prophet Isaiah in 53 He talked about the Messiah, the great one who was to come. And he pointed out the cross. You have such a description of the suffering of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The Messiah being crucified. His blood being shed. Moses wrote about him. Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 46, Moses wrote about me. Listen to him, is what Moses said. There's a prophet coming who is greater than myself. Listen to him. Moses knew all kinds of things about blood. He ushered in the sacrificial system where animals were shed, blood was shed, pointing ahead to the great sacrifice. And then there was John the Baptist, the revealer of Jesus to Israel. And when Jesus showed up, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All of these, brothers and sisters, take this in when you want to answer that question, what about all the people who lived before Jesus? And you have to answer that. All of them were looking ahead to the Messiah by faith. And one day, those of us that are sitting right here at Beacon Light who have put their faith in the Messiah Jesus, in Christ Jesus, are going to be sitting at the table enjoying a festival with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Isaiah, etc., etc. But Paul, 
Jesus stood among the Pharisees one day, big group of Pharisees, big crowd of people, and he said this out loud, you diligently study the scriptures because you think in them you find eternal life. Now the one to whom the scriptures is pointing is standing right in front of you. And you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Why? Because they were hardened. They had established their own righteousness. It was on their terms, not on God's. And so Jesus told them a parable. It was a parable that was written for them who had trusted in their own righteousness, their own ability to be right with God. The tax collector and the Pharisee, the two men, they went to the temple to pray. The Pharisee said, I thank you, God, that I'm not like that man over there. And I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a perjurer. And I don't extort things. I don't use pressure to get money. I tithe all that I possess and I fast twice a week. The tax collector stayed in the back in the temple. He couldn't even lift up his eyes. He beat his chest and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus Christ said, I tell you that that man was justified before God. The tax collector, he was the one that was in the right with God. Not the Pharisee. And Paul is a Pharisee. And the one to whom all Scripture points is right there in front of him on the road to Damascus, and he's blinded by the light of Jesus. What happened to Paul? He met the risen Savior. Stay with me now in this message. Let's understand what happens when you encounter Jesus. It happened to Paul. It happened for you. He met the crucified, risen Savior. He met the Messiah, and he repented. He turned, and he put his faith, he put his trust in Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. He called him Lord, which means that this was an obedient faith, not some kind of vague believing that there is a Jesus, this was an obedient faith. He went and got baptized. He had come to know Jesus, to know him. He was now found in Christ. But what did he find when he was found in Christ? He found that the blood of Jesus had cleansed him from all unrighteousness. No longer this covering over sin, but the absolute removal of sin through his faith in Christ. He had been circumcised, but this isn't a mutilation of the flesh. He had been circumcised in his heart. The dead stuff of his heart was cut away by the Holy Spirit. He had become a new creation. For Paul, circumcision and uncircumcision mean nothing, is what he would say. What counts is new creation, Galatians 6, 15. He was united with Christ now, personally. He was united with him. Christ was in him. He was in Christ. He had been crucified with Christ. He no longer lived this old Paul. But Christ lived in him. The life that Paul now lived in this body of his, he was living by faith in the Son of God, Jesus, who loved him and died for him. Paul, by faith, had literally, not figuratively, become united with Jesus Christ. He died with Christ on that cross. Paul was crucified with Christ. 
He died to sin with Christ. He was raised with Jesus in this union with Jesus, united with Jesus. Paul literally had been raised to a new life. He who knew no sin, Jesus, had become sin for us, for Paul, so that in him, in Jesus, we could become the righteousness of God. Paul had become a partaker, a partaker of the divine nature. The divine nature of God is in him. The spirit of the living God is now in Paul in the temple of his body. Not in Jerusalem anymore is where God was going to dwell in that temple. God is dwelling in the temple of his body and your body, your individual body. In the temple of your body rests the Holy Spirit. You are a living stone. And that Holy Spirit who lives within him enables him to obey God. There's a power now in Paul It's the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And the Holy Spirit enables him to obey. Circumcision, Paul says? Mutilation of the flesh? It's nothing. Your religious observances to make yourself right with God? It's nothing. Circumcision and uncircumcision, he says in another place, means nothing. What counts is obeying his commandments. Circumcision and uncircumcision, he says in another place. Do you see how many times he talks about circumcision being nothing? Circumcision and uncircumcision mean nothing. What counts is faith expressing itself in love. Faith. Faith in Christ expressing itself in love. Love is the sum of all the commandments. You live a life of love, obedience to God. The law of God is now written upon Paul's heart and upon your heart and upon his mind by the Holy Spirit. And Paul knows now that that which he pursued all of his life so zealously, together with so many other Jews, the righteousness of God, he was pursuing it. He is now found by putting his faith in Jesus. He personally has entered into righteousness, and it's found in Christ. We started our service today looking at a verse, message, Isaiah 61.10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. You remember how Philippians chapter 3 started, verse 1? Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, Isaiah says. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Paul has been made righteous in Christ. He has been clothed with Christ, Christ's righteousness, Christ's holiness, Christ's nature. Paul also knows that he possesses in Christ a right status before God as a member of God's covenant community. Paul is now part of the true Israel. Not natural Israel, natural born Israel, born genetically of Israel, but the true Israel. Paul is now part of the covenant community of the Israel of God. 
He is now part of the very body of Christ. He's in Christ not only personally as an individual united with him, but he has entered in Christ into his body, which is the church. Made up of Jews and all nations that put their faith in Christ the Messiah. Our righteousness before God, brothers and sisters, all of it is of Christ. It's grace. It's his accomplishment. It's his attainment. It's his fulfillment. The death, burial, and resurrection, our part is to trust him, to put our faith in him. It's in Christ alone. Obedient faith in Christ alone. Jesus is Lord. The church in Philippi and you here at Beacon Light, this is the gospel that you received. Walk worthy of it. Stand firm in it, and don't let anyone touch it. Not even religious people, not even apostles, not even angels, not even, Paul says, ourselves. If I myself, Paul says, or any among us, preach any other gospel than that, let him be cursed. You know, the apostle Paul had to confront Peter He was eating with the Gentiles and the nations for a while, and then he got convinced that he needed Christ plus something. And Peter broke away from the Gentiles who had put their faith in Christ. He wouldn't eat with them anymore. Paul says, what are you doing? You're rebuilding the wall, the barrier that stood between us and the Gentiles, the nations. You're rebuilding the wall. Jesus has removed that wall. What are you doing, Peter? That's Satan's strategy. When he loses you to Christ, when he loses me to Christ, when he's lost a church to Christ, what he does is he tries all he can to render it ineffective. And how does he do that? Christ plus something. Make it so that it's not just Christ, but it's Christ plus something. Christ plus Mary, co-redeemer. Christ plus the King James Version only if you're going to be part of our covenant community. Christ plus the way we dress if you're going to be part of our covenant community. Even baptism can be an issue. Infant baptism, not infant baptism. Christ, but you also must speak in tongues if you want to be part of this covenant community. Christ, plus the forbidding the drinking of alcohol. And don't provide alcohol if you want to be part of this covenant community. But the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. It is of righteousness, of peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Satan's strategy is to divide you and to cause you to fall from grace. So I close this message. I know it was lengthy, but it wasn't four hours. But it's crucial. Beacon light. We're in a strange season, a wonderful season. This church, Beacon Light, we're black, white, Hispanic, Asian, 
rich, poor, educated, uneducated, people that come from Pentecostal churches are here in this assembly. Churches that speak in tongues are here in this assembly. There are Baptists who have been from a Baptist tradition who are in this very assembly and count this their family. There are those who are from the Reformed tradition who hold high the Heidelberg Catechism and the Belgic Confession and the Canons of Dort who are in this assembly as a family united. There are non-denominational people. It's kind of a denomination, really, but non-denomination that are here. You got people that agree with infant baptism, and you got those that don't agree with infant baptism here. You got some that say the rapture is coming. You got others that are in the same assembly who say, no, I don't hold to that teaching of the rapture in this very assembly. Why? Beacon Light, what's going on? How is it that we're together, unified, and that we love one another, and we belong, and we know we're a family? Do you know why? It's because Christ is preached here. Christ. That's what Paul said. I resolve to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. We're here because of Jesus. Our right standing before God is on the basis of Jesus alone. Paul says, don't let anything touch it. That's how you have your unity in Christ. We're unified here too because on Wednesday nights we pray for it. We pray for it all the time. John chapter 17, Father, let them be one as we are one. I and them and you and me, let them be brought to complete unity so that the world may know that you have sent me and that you have loved them even as you have loved me. We pray for this unity in Christ. Brothers and sisters, stand firm in your faith in Christ Jesus our Lord. For in him alone is our salvation. In him alone is our righteousness. And in him alone is our peace. It's in Christ alone. Peace be with you. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, dear God, protect us from the evil one. Keep us one in Christ. And help us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, becoming more like him and more fit for service in your glorious kingdom and all of it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.